That's Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. And it goes, it's called the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to women, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will open, will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be despaired to make one wise, she took off us the fruit and ate, and she also said, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they were that were naked, and they sawed fig leaves together, and made themselves linen cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself, he said. Who told you you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who gave to be with hit me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of your days of your life. I will put him into between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your despise shall be contrary to your husband's, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Forms and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But I sweat by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it we are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made of Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now least he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent them out from the garden to Eden to work, the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and 
and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a servant, a coman, and a flaring sword that turned every way to God, the way of the tree of life. Well, thank you so much, Kev, for reading for us. Um, this is my second attempt to use this microphone, but already I can tell it seems like it's working better. It's not all crackly. So I get, I get my freedom again, where I can move around. Um, I'm always happy about that. Um, but yes, as you probably can tell from the reading that we are um, kind of in a little transition. We were studying 1 Corinthians, the first two chapters. We've finished that. So now we are going to be moving on, and shortly we're going to be jumping, I think, into 1 Timothy, if I remember correctly. But before we get to 1 Timothy, we're going to look at... Two weeks, we're going to spend Genesis, this week and next week. And I get the privilege of teaching both of those weeks. And I love Genesis. Uh, Genesis is actually my favorite book of the Bible. I would, I mean, some of you might think that Jonah is my favorite book of the Bible. And it's really close. But Genesis is actually my favorite book of the Bible. And that's because, like, every major theme, everything that we learn from the Bible starts in Genesis. Which makes sense, because... Genesis is the first book of the Bible. That's where you'd think all of this stuff would start. But what I want to say is that if you can understand Genesis, and especially if you can really understand the first 11 chapters, it will really enhance the way you read your Bible. It will really enhance the way you understand the rest of the story. And I could easily stand up here week after week for easily a year or more and go through just the first 11 chapters, but we're not going to do that. Um, if you were excited about that notion, I mean, I would be excited at that notion too, but um, if you are one of, somebody like me, let's meet up sometime, let's grab a coffee, we can sit and discuss Genesis all day long, I'd love to do that with you. But today we're going to look at Genesis 3, what we just heard Kev read for us, and it's, it's a really important story in these first 11 chapters. I mean, it's a story that I feel like most people know, the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve eating the fruit and the garden, the snake, and all that. And what I'm going to try to do my best is to keep my sermon focused and uh, simple because I could easily talk about some of these things for a long time. But I don't want to stand up here and do that all day. Again, if you would like to hear, do that with me, Contact me. We can meet over Zoom or go to Blue Water. Or I'll drive down to Ainsford for you guys down here. I am more than happy to do that and talk about this. But with that said, before we can really get started in Genesis 3, we kind of need to know the context of where we are. I mean, that's a very important thing. Whenever we're studying any portion of the Bible, you want to know the context surrounding that. So real quick, um, I, I did put out a poll as I usually do on for the live people watching live that asking if you've read Genesis and it seems like most people have. So most people would be aware that Genesis starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis one gives us this really beautiful picture of God creating the cosmos, creating everything. And it's telling us how the God of the Bible is a God that's creative, He's a God that can turn chaos into order. He's a God that creates us humans in his image. And by creating us humans in his image, that is telling us that all humans are equal. There's not 
one race or something that's better than another. We're all reflections of God. And then chapter two gives us kind of like a different creation story in a way. It's more where like if chapter one is focused on the big picture of all the whole universe, chapter two kind of zooms in and is focused on the creation of, of humanity. And in chapter two, we read about how God makes this human out of the dirt. Um, and then when the human is by himself, it's declared that being by himself is not good. So God takes the human and splits him in two, and that's where we get man and woman. And then God also creates this garden, Eden, which is going to be very important because that's where everything happens in chapter three happens. But there are some important things that we need to recognize about Eden. First, and probably most importantly, it is the ideal place where heaven and earth meet. What I mean by that is that we see that this is where God and humans can both exist together in harmony. And when you read through the Bible, when you read stuff like about the tabernacle or the temple, the way it's, those places are set up, their design, the decorations inside, they all point back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you just look ahead to the very end of the Bible, at the very end of Revelation, and you're reading about the new heavens and the new earth, you see how um, there's a lot of descriptions that reflect the Garden of Eden. It's almost like the end of everything is a renewed Eden in a way. And second, I want to show how, since this is the place where heaven and earth meets, and this is where God and humans can dwell, that also means that the other spiritual beings that hang around with God are probably there present as well. Um, when we look throughout the Bible, whenever somebody gets a vision of God's throne room, whenever somebody is comes up into heaven, they see God, there's always God, but there's always other cherubim and angels that surround him. And I want to get that picture in your head that wherever God goes, he usually has an entourage with him, because that's going to be important as we read through chapter three, especially when we look at these first, ver when we look at this first verse of the passage. If you read that again with me, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now quickly, before I get onto like our two main points, I do want to talk about this snake. I mean, most obvious thing, the most thing, the thing about the snake that most people already know is that this is Satan, right? Uh, Revelations, Revelation 12, 9 says this pretty explicitly when it says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And while this seems like the most like basic thing that most people understand about the snake, that it's Satan, it's also something that we forget has a lot of implications. Because we need to remember, Satan didn't start out as like this evil being that was going around trying to trick the whole earth. Satan started out as a guardian cherubim, the specific type of spiritual being that is always associated with the throne of God, the beings that are close, probably the closest to God that we read in the Bible. So this is a being that gets to hang out with God all the time. So when this snake shows up to talk to Eve, it's not just a snake. This is one of the closest things to God. So, of course, when Eve hears the snake talking to her, she's going to listen. Because why wouldn't she? 
Like we forget that there's no reason for Eve not to trust the snake. The other aspect that we read about this snake and that I want to focus on real quick is that it clearly defines it as a beast of the field. Now, this is important. This is a very important detail because it's going to set up a very specific consequence that we see in the Bible about sin. And that is that sin causes humans to become animals. Real quickly, if you have your Bibles open, if you want to, you can uh, go back to Genesis 1. Specifically, uh, verse 26 of chapter 1, and you'll see that it says this. Uh, then God said, 26, yeah. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created humans with a purpose, and that purpose is that they were going to actually rule over the rest of creation. We're given a status that elevates us above the animals. So we need to keep that in mind as we read that passage, because we're going to see how we're reading a passage basically where an animal, a beast of the field, is trying to change that order. That no longer humans are above them, but almost that humans are either equal with them or even below them. And so to keep the focus on some of these big picture things that are going on in Genesis 3, I'm going to focus on really two main ideas, main themes that we get from here. And that is how we are tempted and what's the consequences of sin. What does sin actually do to us? So let's look back again at verse 1. We see the snake shows up and we kind of see the first thing that temptation does. The first way that the enemy tries to attack us. The first thing that the serpent does is he asks a question of Eve. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And what is he trying to do there? Well, it seems like he's trying to plant a little bit of a seed of doubt. And doubt is honestly one of the biggest tools that's used against us. I mean, whether it's, and notice that this isn't like a huge attack. It's not like he shows up and the first thing he says is, oh yeah, God's a liar, you shouldn't trust him. No, this is like a subtle thing. It's just, it's right below the surface. It's a slight twist on what God says. And spiritual attacks often start this way. They start off at these little seeds because they know that if a little spark can catch, it can turn into a raging fire. Which is what Paul is thinking about when he writes in Ephesians 6, 16. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Chapter 6 of Ephesians is the famous chapter about the armor of God. And notice that he's talking about the shield of faith. But notice what he says the shield's purpose is. The shield isn't, you'd think that, oh, it's a shield. Its purpose is the block. But he doesn't say that. He says the shield is there to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Because flaming arrows, when they're launched at you, are dangerous. Obviously, first, because they're arrows. So yes, you don't want to get hit by an arrow. But the real danger is the fact that they're on fire. If that hits you, even if you blocked it, and that fire catches onto you, you could be engulfed in flames. And that would cause even more damage than that initial arrow. So the shield's purpose isn't so much to block the arrows, but to make sure that it's extinguished. When we build up our faith in God, we can quickly get rid of those seeds of doubt. 
And to Eve's credit, if we look at it, she kind of answers in faith, right? She responds pretty quickly with God's own words. She says in verses 2 and 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she doesn't answer with God's exact words, right? She's kind of quoting God from chapter 2, but it's not exactly the same way. Um, it seems like there's a little thing added in there about the neither shall you touch it, but maybe that's something they added, maybe something that they decided so that way they would just keep some extra layers of protection. So the serpent notices that she's standing in faith, so he changes the tactics. And he moves from trying just to plant doubts by asking questions to now trying to deny God, what God actually said, trying to deny the consequences of what God said would happen. Because if we look at verses 4 and 5, it says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now remember, the serpent, the devil, is one of the cherubim. He's one of these beings that get to hang around with God. So it might make sense to Eve that, oh, this being might have some secret knowledge, might know something that I wouldn't. And he's telling the woman that, oh, there is, there is this special knowledge. There's this something that God is keeping from you, that the rest of us spiritual beings, we all know it. So if you eat of this fruit, you're going to get that secret knowledge. You're going to get to be like us. And here's the thing, right? This knowledge of good and evil, could God have figured out a way with, to let the man and woman know it without them doing it this way for, by God's own way? Could God could have come up with something like that? Of course. In fact, I think if she didn't eat of the fruit, God would have, through their lives, God might have done something where they could also obtain this knowledge without having to be in rebellion to God. But that's not what the real temptation is. The real temptation it's to decide to do something our own way instead of trusting in God's way. And that's basically sin 101, right? We decide that we know better than God. We decide that we want something. We decide that we're going to define what is good and evil, that we get to decide, oh, no, that's actually right and that's actually wrong. And we live by our standards, not God's standards. So what does the woman do? Does she trust God? Does she like lean back on God's word and know that, oh, this is the very being that created me. I should trust him. Well, as we all probably know, if we look at verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now there are a few things I want to look at from this specific verse. First, there's that, fa that phrase, a delight to the eyes. She looked at it, and it looked good. And that right there is probably the key to pretty much every temptation, right? We see something that looks good, and we decide that we're going to take it for ourselves. And this could be that, again, we think that we have a better plan than God. We see that a little bit later in Genesis when we read about Abram and Sarah and um, Hagar, right? They, they, Abram was told, hey, just be patient. I will give you a son. But instead of being patient and trusting in God's way, they decide, oh, well, let's have you sleep with my servant and we're going to do it our way instead. Or it could be that we just see something that we want and we're going to take it, which 
I, I mean, the, I, the classic picture of that is David and Bathsheba, right? David's up on his rooftops. He sees Bathsheba bathing, and he wants her, and he decides that he's going to take her. And in fact, if you read those stories, in fact, if you read pretty much every story throughout the Bible that deals with somebody's sin, this phrase or something like this phrase appears. Something about them seeing, and it says it looks good to their eyes. That phrase is throughout the Bible, and it's always tied to somebody being tempted. In fact, I think this is what James is thinking about when in James 1.14 he writes, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. How often do we fall into sin because we see something and we want it? Now, it isn't bad to want things, right? I'm sure we all want things. You know, when we feel hungry, we want food. When we see clothes, we, want it, we might see a clothes that we like. But the problem is, is that when those objects of our want becomes our sole focus. In fact, I mean, me and Rachel had a little bit of a debate about this. But in my opinion, I think that the 10th commandment, do not covet, is often what leads to breaking the rest of the covenant the rest of the other nine. Because it's that fact that we covet something, we want that, we want that, that we're willing to do everything else to get it. So what can we do in light of, light of temptation? What can we, what example can we live by? Well, we should live by the example of the person that we're trying to be at all times, and that is Christ. Now, we don't have time to read it, but if you have a chance, read either Matthew 4 or Luke 4, and you're going to get a story about Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. And we see that that old serpent is using all the same tricks. He tries to plant seeds of doubt into Jesus' mind. He questions God's word. And he presents Jesus with things that, that look good to him. And each time Jesus is able to overcome the temptation by standing firm in his trust of God's plan and also he, his knowledge of God's word because he quotes scripture back at Satan. So in the same way, we can also stand firm when we're faced temptations. We can fix our eyes on Christ and trust in God's word. But here's the thing about that. You can't fix your eyes on somebody you don't know. And you can't Trust in God's word if you don't know it as well. That's why I hope and I pray that Sundays aren't the only day that you're spending time learning or reading the Bible. I hope this isn't the only time that the Bible gets opened in your life. Because how else are you going to be prepared when the world throws temptations your way? It's going to be really hard to follow Christ's example when you don't have any scripture to lean on. Because here's the thing. We can actually say no to temptation. We, we're, what the Bible tells us is that when you're saved, you are free from that. You, the, the slavery that we're put under, under sin, is broken. We are made free. We have the choice to say no. And in fact, I think Adam and Eve, it's my belief, had also had a choice. They could have said no. I don't think it was somehow like predestined or God forced this to happen or in any way like that. They could have trusted in God, but instead they looked at that fruit, and they decided it was good, and they decided they wanted it. So now that we've looked at how we're tempted, how the enemy tries to get us, we can look at what does sin actually do, right? Because we've seen them 
They've broken God's command. They've decided that they're going to do what they think is right, not what God thinks is right. And what happens? Well, verses 7 to 13 reveals that. It says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, well, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The biggest consequence of sin is broken relationships. Because notice, before they ate, they had no problem with each other. They were completely naked around each other. They trusted each other completely they had there was an intimacy intimacy that was there but as soon as they ate that trust in each other that willingness to be vulnerable with each other was immediately gone that intimacy was completely broken because i mean to be honest besides the issues of modesty wearing clothes helps shield us from each other because when you're naked, you have nothing else to hide behind, right? There's nothing protecting you from other people. So they immediately lost the trust they had with each other, and they immediately start to try to cover up because they can no longer trust the other person, be vulnerable with that other person. And not only is their relationship between each other is ruined, we see that their relationship with God is ruined as well. Because before, they never had to be afraid of God. They could trust him 100%. They didn't have to worry about what he thought or what he was going to do or anything like that because they were there with him in the garden. And yet, as soon as they ate and they hear him walking, the first thing they do is hide. And of course, when people can't be open and honest, when we no longer can trust the other people that we can be honest with them and let them know what's going on, we try not to take responsibility for ourselves we turn to blaming each other. I mean, first, we see that Adam blamed not only the woman, but blamed God. We see the woman blaming the snake, probably the very first phrase that somebody ever said, the devil made me do it. Um, we see that sin causes shame. And when we are shamed as humans, we try to defend ourselves and protect ourselves from that shame. And we often try to push the responsibility onto somebody else but we will take responsibility for our actions, which is what we read in the next part, because we see that after this, God pronounces judgments, first on the snake, then the man, and then the woman. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on a few key things from these judgments. So first, I want to look at verse 16. When he talks to the woman, it says this, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now first, um, ladies, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't have to deal with it, but apparently you can blame me for childbearing being painful. But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on that second part about it, that your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That's how the ESV translates it. But 
That, that phrase there is one of those difficult phrases in Hebrew. In fact, if you're reading from a different translation, it probably says something else. It might say something like, your desire will be for your husband. Or your desire will be to control your husband. I've seen some translations use that. The main point of this is that the relationship is broken. The main point of this curse is saying that these two beings, this man and this woman, used to be able to exist in perfect harmony, with perfect equality. Not, they were able to live in trust with each other completely. They didn't have to worry about each other. One didn't try to rule over the other or anything like that. And now that's completely broken. They are now divided. The woman whether, depending on what your translation, is either going to be obsessed with the man or trying to be controlling of the man, and the man is going to rule over the woman. The, it's, there's a divide. It's not what God originally designed us to be like. In fact, some people try to use this verse to like embrace that, like, oh, man is greater than woman or something like that. But that, that means if you embrace this verse, you're embracing the effects of sin. If you try to elevate one gender over the other, you are saying that, yeah, sin was right, which is wrong. You should never say sin is right at all. But sin doesn't only break relationships. It doesn't only cause, basically, us humans to be divided against each other. It also lowers our position. Because look at verse 18. Thorns and thistles I shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now, this may seem like a random verse to pull out. You might be like, okay, Shelby, where are you going with this? This seems out of all of the things that God tells the man that this seems like the most random thing to pick. But that phrase, you shall eat the plant of the field, is, I think, a very key thing to this. Because if you look back at Genesis 1 once again, specifically verses 29 to 30, it says this, if I can get to it. Genesis 1, 29 to 30, it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the, all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Notice that there's a distinction made in Genesis 1 between the humans and the animals. Humans are given fruit and vegetables, essentially, and the animals are given stuff that grows from the ground, uh, like grass or other things. Yet, what does God say to the man now? He says, now you're going to eat the plants of the field. You no longer get the special treatment. You no longer get the special food that was reserved just for you. That is now just open to everybody. Humans have now been declared, at least on this distinction, at the same level as animals. And we see that throughout the Bible, that when humans decide that they're going to define good and evil according to themselves, that they become no better than animals. I mean, if we look at a lot of stories throughout the Bible. I mean, look at the book of Judges, right? The book of Judges, throughout it, keeps repeating this phrase that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And we see how horrible that goes. Like, there's just some awful stories in the book of Judges. When we see something that looks good, and we decide to take it our way, not God's way, 
we, we justify it in our heads. We let our desires tempt us. We end up just becoming like a bunch of animals. We harm each other. We do whatever we can. We push other people away. We trample over other people so that we can get our own way. And often the sad twist of all of this, the sad consequence of not trusting God is that if you did trust God, if you did follow what he said was right, if you did do what he says you should do, things would have turned out so much better. Because look at verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. If Adam and Eve had just listened to God, if they had just ignored that tree that they were not supposed to eat and eat of this tree that they could have eaten from, it says they would have lived forever. They could have had eternal life dwelling with God. The thing that we're waiting for, they could have had way back when, if they would have just ignored the tree that was this tree and went for this tree. Because the picture that we get of the garden, the thing that we need to understand that really drives this whole temptation thing home is that these trees were next to each other in the garden. If you look at chapter 2, and I'm going to actually quote from the NET, because I think this does a better job of giving us the correct picture. But chapter 2, verse 9, says this, The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. It's a What a picture of choosing God's way versus your own way. Because it's literally like you would have had to walk past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to get to the tree of life. You would have had to say no to yourself so that you could say yes to God. And we must constantly seek to do that. We must constantly seek that to choose God's way, not our own way. Because if we choose our own way, all it leads is to brokenness and sin and death. As we can see throughout, not just the Bible, but the history of the world, that when humans decide what is good and evil, it never turns out well. So we need to make sure we choose the tree of life. We need, when we are faced with that decision, when we have the two trees, even though this tree might look good, even though this tree might be pleasing to the eyes, we need to look past that, walk past it, and choose the tree of life. Or, as Moses puts it in Deuteronomy 30.19, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. So what? Why, why study all this? Well, first, temptation can come from us, come to us from anywhere. Like, if we're not prepared, we're going to fall for it. Like, it, the enemy is always ready to attack us. We need to be prepared to stand firm in our faith in God, and to have a knowledge of his word. Now, real quick, I do want to say that, yes, the main way the enemy attacks us, at least I feel like what we see from the Bible is doubt. But I want to tell you right now, you're going to get doubts throughout this life. Like, that's just going to happen. And doubting actually isn't a sin. Because we see in the Psalms, there's like a good chunk of the Psalms of people just struggling with where is God they're, they're crying out, asking God, where are you? Why aren't you defending me? But the thing is, is that if we get stuck in our doubts, if we just stay there, that can leave us wide open to just fall into sin. 
we need to make sure that we stand firm on in our trust in God. Or as Paul puts it, we need to take up the shield of faith so we can distinguish or extinguish those flaming arrows. But if you've been watching or listening or whatever, and you're not saved, maybe you haven't made that decision. You haven't chosen Jesus as your savior. Well, I'm just going to welcome you right now to choose life. And the fact is, is that you might be that person that's in the garden who's just been munching away on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe your whole life, the whole time, the tree of life has been sitting there, but you've been ignoring it. But how great is it that our God is a God that doesn't be like, isn't like, well, it's too bad for you. You ate this. I'm never giving you another chance. Now, what we see is that Jesus came. He died for us. He rose again so that there could be a way for us to move past that tree to get to the tree of life, to ignore our way and choose God's way so that we can live forever, so that we can reach that new Eden, so that we can get to that place where we're dwelling with God in a place where we can completely trust each other, we can completely trust God, that we never have to worry about being vulnerable with each other. We never have to worry about other people judging us. We never have to worry about the fact that we need to somehow protect ourselves from somebody else because we're going to be all living in perfect harmony and peace because that's the picture that we see. And that's what we get if we choose God's way. That's what we get if we choose life. So real quick, two questions to leave you with. First, are you prepared for temptation? And second, which tree are you choosing? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. God, I just pray for everybody in this building, everybody who's listening and watching, everybody who's watching this some other time or listening to this some other time, that you would just bless them today, God. God, I pray that each day we will just trust in you and trust in your word. That we will realize that your plan for us is better than any plan we could come up with. As, we've been, as we read through 1 Corinthians, you make foolish the wisdom of the world. So God, we want to trust in your wisdom. God, we want to follow you wherever you lead. God, I just pray for anybody who's watching or listening that if they haven't come to know you in that way, that they will. That they will realize they don't have to do anything special. They don't have to like somehow change themselves. God, you want them to just come as they are. Just come. You are, you are standing at the door and knocking. We know that Jesus is there waiting outside. And if we let him in, he will come in and dwell with us that you are looking to abide with us. Thank you so much for that, God. In your name, amen.